Welcome to The Pestle, reviewing and breaking down movies to look for insights into the movie-making process. Hosted by voiceover artists, we make your life sound more exciting than it is. Now let's dim the lights and start the show. <laughs> Welcome to The Pestle. Today's show is brought to you by Zargnuts. Not moving anywhere for a while? Grab a Zargnut and watch the world pass you by. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the Pestle. I am Wes. And I'm Todd. And this is a show where we like to usually watch a movie and pick it apart in a good positive way. You know, one of the things that I think we bring to the conversation is, for one, we're always looking to add to the conversation. Now, sometimes we'll go do research and say, oh, here's something the director really thought was important or whatnot. But more often than not, we're looking to add onto the conversation instead of just kind of regurgitate what other people have said. Right. But the other thing I think that we really focus on is often, more often than not, we're thinking about the positive stuff. And when it comes to something like this, we're doing Apollo 11 today. When it comes to like space films and science films, there's so many people who like to just kind of tear it apart for the sake of, I don't know, self-elevation and kind you know of about the, the movie or the science behind it uh, more, a little bit of both, but more of the latter of mm -hmm. the science behind it. They, they only look to, you know, pick it apart in in these really heavily criticized ways like, Oh, that could never happen. Mm -hmm. Well, no shit. You're watching a movie. <laughs> yeah. We, there's an idea of suspension of disbelief. And I think it's okay to like point some things out here and there, but I think, you know, there's certain people I'm not going to name names um, that are out there that, more often than not, they're just looking to bring something else down instead of saying, yeah, I'm a scientist. And even though this movie has some flaws, there's some really cool ways that it's promoting science and my field. Yeah. Uh, and that kind of, you know, the, the other approach of the positive way, I think you can get more mileage out of that. Yeah. Yeah. It's always easy to say how smart you are by ripping something to shreds. Well, it, it, it also depends on the kind of movie, right? Uh, so like, if a movie is is obviously just made to make money and you can tell that yeah. I'm totally fine with right. people tearing it apart, you know. True enough. But if a if there if there's something, you know, deeper which normally there is <clears throat> that's that's trying to be said by the film, that's when you start, you know, like like letting things go a little bit because because like it's not really about the fact that you can't you're, that that you shouldn't be able to hear that in the outer space or or whatever it's more about what's behind the the meaning of that scene that you're talking wanting to tear apart or the movie as a whole right totally yeah. i love that that's such a good point like yeah you know if there's whatever a transformers-esque movie set in space and you're like you said it not <laughs> me I, I was thinking it but i laid off <laughs> if one of the, that kind of movies out there and you're like well, they can't translate like, okay, that's, that's fine. But at the same time, we also know that's not what they're getting at. Um, and of course you kind of set that trap for yourself. If you walk into that kind of movie looking for like great adherence, mm -hmm. but then you'll also have someone like a James Cameron who is going, you know, 13 levels deep that in some cases is surprising engineers and scientists by the, the depth of it. And then you'll kind of fudge on the, the part that you're actually talking about the, right. the, the story in the heart and the meat on the bones. Yeah. So I, th I always think it's interesting just to see what people who know about these things take away from it and the, the lens that they, they put on, because I think as cool as some of those science, you know, factoids are, uh, I'm also interested in how it speaks to them in some level of their character. Yeah. Yeah. Well Random. said. Thanks. It's a good start. Yeah. Uh, with that being said, uh, there are spoilers, alert, spoiler alerts. If you didn't know that we landed on the moon, sorry. What? We landed on the moon. Uh, uh, anyway, so there... I, there's no spoiler alerts. Not technically, but I, I what, think... We're going to be talking about specific yeah. things about the film, not like, you know, totally. the outcome. But I would say that if I had known exactly what this film would be going in, I'm sure I would have still enjoyed it a great deal. But I think there's a certain element of surprise of you go into a documentary, you kind of expect a specific format and they get away from that format in this mm -hmm. um, to do something that I wouldn't say is like unique, but it's certainly uh, 
outside the normal modern. We see there's so many documentaries. We're surrounded by them every day now, mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to 15 years ago. There weren't a lot of documentaries outside of like Frontline right. and uh, 6060, yeah. like or 60 Minutes in 2020. Like now, there's so many, and they follow a very specific format that this one gets away from, and so. So yeah, so there's there are spoilers, I guess. There, there's spoilers about yeah. facets of the film. Yeah. Uh, so go watch Apollo 11 yeah. in the theater and sit in the front row because that's what we did. <laughs> and <laughs> thankfully, like, what are all these people sitting in the middle of the theater? I don't know. In I've, a movie like this, like I you felt even, like I was being launched. I still space. felt like I was too far away. <laughs> yeah. God, listen, go sit in the front two rows. Like, okay, the front row maybe is too close for you. Fine. Row two, three at the most, but why don't uh. get inside. If I go online and to buy a ticket and there's only tickets in the middle of the theater, I won't go (laughs) to the movie. Like there's no reason. I'll sit at home in my big screen TV and I'll watch something else, you know, like whatever. (laughs) That's awesome. Anyway. So yeah, uh, I completely agree. What are we going to talk about then? We'll talk about the cinema. The idea of documentaries are either cinema verite versus uh, direct cinema. They're two different flavors of documentaries and I'll touch on those. I don't have a huge depth of knowledge to share on that, but we'll lightly touch on that just to give you some ground rules of what that is and why it matters. Um, we'll talk about the power of editing and I may or may not, I don't have anything planned, but I want to touch on celluloid versus digital. I would um, like to hear what you have to say. Yeah. <laughs> and a plethora of other such things as this. <laughs> oh, you're changing it up. Yeah. Nice. So a quick synopsis of the film. Uh, a look at the Apollo 11 mission to land on the moon led by Commander Neil Armstrong and pilots Buzz Aldrin and Michael Collins. Directed by Todd Douglas Miller. Featuring Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, Michael Collins, and Gene Kranz. The way we discovered the 65 millimeter and seen it for the first time was something I'll never forget. There was two reels and we put them on a prototype scanner that the guys at Final Frame here built. And you would just see these little bursts of imagery about every three or four seconds. One of the defining aspects of this project was the 65 millimeter film. And what we wanted to do was scan this in a way so that no one has to go back to this film again. In order to do that, we had to create a new scanner that could scan 8K and 16K resolutions. We were running the most important film in the world on a scanner that was a prototype. It was inspiring and terrifying. Good morning, Neil. Good Welcome aboard. We were all dumbstruck immediately at how beautiful the cinematography was. The detail in the footage that we were seeing was something I, I just had never seen before. There was three or four of us in the room, just speechless. Honey, you're going to extend that time out. We recreated the entire mission in nine days. So we have a timeline where you can look and see over 100 tracks of audio. And that took the better half of a year just to compile that. We were working with 18,000 hours of uncatalogued audio, 11,000 hours of which was from Apollo 11. Cabinet behind us. The NASA official who escorted us over to this site. We had hundreds of reels of footage, including the 16 and 35. And we had 70 millimeter 10 perf, which is something that most people have never even heard of. It was used as an engineering format for the government. It was petabytes of data when it was finally transferred. It's cool, because when you watch the film, you don't feel like it's something happening 50 years ago. It feels contemporary, and that is part of the artistry of the people who were actually shooting the footage. It's also the artistry of the National Archives and their expertise in preserving this material. It was in pristine condition. Uh, can we just keep watching that? I know, I really could You're have just... link that in the notes, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, that's right. Oh, my God. So... I don't even know where to start on this thing. Like for me, I, whenever I'm watching something that I'm really interested in, um, especially something like this, that you can't possibly take in all of it. My eyes tend to bug out of my head. 
Like it's not something I really do on purpose. I just suddenly I'm trying to gather as much light into my eyeballs. And you see this expression on people's faces when they're surprised. Like if you surprise someone, you scare them, their eyes go wide because they're trying to take in as much information as they can to understand what's happening to them. And for me, that was kind of my experience in this. I was just so surprised and I was so trying to gulp it all down through my eyeballs that my eyes... I couldn't get them to go back to normal. Every time I would be like, oh, hey, just look normal, dude. You can, you can breathe. <laughs> yeah. I, it would take maybe four or five seconds before my eyes would just fly right back open. And I probably didn't calm down until, I don't know, 30, 40 minutes into the film. Yeah. Um, because I just could not believe what I was seeing. And it was just so. And by the end of the film, I was exhausted. The most amazing thing about this whole thing to me is just is the futuristic way that they shot this. This was shot in 1969. In okay, let's 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 separate the quality of the fil- of the the footage, right? Because mm-hmm. in watch any film in 1969, and it all looks like shit. Um, but the, okay, so separate the quality of the footage, right? Which is better than anything I've ever seen on screen. Yeah. I, I've never, I literally have never seen anything that looked so good the entire time. I'll buy into that. Okay. Um, separate that from the actual cinematography from like, like locked off shots in 1969, just sitting still. And I know uh, we're going to talk about a lot of that has to do with editing too, you know, Shh. but like, but like you got to have something to edit you got to get your coverage, you know? Yeah. On like 70 millimeter. I can't even begin to imagine documenting on 70 and grabbing coverage. I mean, those cameras are massive. Yeah. I don't, I just don't, but okay. But there are so many shots where you think that's the reason why I think that it feels like it was just shot today. Not so much the quality because like, you know, the, the actual footage could have been degraded and it still would have been amazing because of the stylistic way that it was, that it was filmed. You know what? One of the things I think makes a difference on that is because this was a documentary, they went with available light. They weren't lighting yeah. any of their subjects. Yeah. And a lot of the movies from that period are using these really hot lights and mm-hmm. uh, it's very contrasty and there's just so much uh, shadow and uh, hard lighting that this is just, it feels more contemporary because of that, because it's, Hey, we're just going to shoot with what we got because we don't have any other choices here. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're not, the editing is amazing. They're not afraid to stay on, on certain shots for a long period of time, but like the angles they got, the, the, the locked off, you know, shots, whatever, like the pans that they did, the, the pan work is incredible. I'm sitting there thinking, what, what, what tripod are you using in 1969 that can do that? Yeah, like, they're tracking the uh, the shuttle. The leaving. shuttle as it's leaving. Like, oh how are you? God. What lens are you right. using? You had to be miles away. Like, I don't. And it looks like you're literally right next to it. It was just unstinking believable. Um, I mean, even and I'm just thinking, were all of these 70 millimeter? All of these cameras? Like, what about the camera that was? that was underneath the, the rocket as it's taking off. That's capturing the, the jets. That was probably 35. Like that's, it had to be right. Yeah. Because to build something, one of the prohibitive things about shooting on 70 is they're wider. They're, you know, two times as big as a 35 millimeter film, which is about the equivalent of today's 4k. So back then, uh, you could shoot on 35 and you're getting very nice resolution. Um, and there's tons of more detail about that, but that's the general idea. And so you double the, the amount of film you're shooting on and suddenly, okay, well, if to shoot on 35 millimeters and you want, you know, 10 minutes of footage, that's, I don't know, 800 feet of film, give or take. And so now if you want that same amount of footage with, uh, you know, 70 millimeter, now you're talking about 1600 feet, 2000 feet, like there's just, and that weighs a lot. And so to just change out the film, cause all that has to be done in a tent or some kind of changing bag, that's a whole process unto itself. Yeah. And then if you want to do something like set it underneath 10,000 degrees of, you know, explosive combustion or however hot it gets down there. Like 
you now have to build a whole thing around that and put enough film in there to let it run for a while, which, you know, creates a lot of obstructions to accomplishing. Yeah. And so I would imagine, I obviously I don't know, but I would just assume 35 or even 16 is probably the easier way to go. But uh, according to JFK, they weren't interested in doing the easy thing. Yeah, right. <laughs> Well, and uh, how many cameras do you think they had? They had, oh, had to have dozens. Yeah, that's right? what I would have said. Yeah, probably a dozen at least. That just boggles my mind to think every one of those cameras has multiple magazines and multiple lenses and uh, multiple people to wield them and carry them around. That's just a massive crew. So even if, let's say, they had you know six cameras, you're still probably talking you know, 25, 30 people to, to keep those things you know humming along. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, luckily the the big caterpillar, you know, wasn't going to move faster than them. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. They could run around I and mean, grab it. <laughs> God, what an amazing shot! God, yeah. <laughs> I just can't even. Oh, it's so amazing. And it just moves at you know a snail's pace. What is it? Something like a few feet a minute? Yeah, something like that. It's like ki- tiny, tiny. <laughs> I mean, it has to. It has just what? How, like fourteen million pounds or something? God. Is what they said. That's incredible. Yeah, and the, and the rockets, like the actual, the heat is is like the almost the temperature of the sun of the yeah, surface yeah, of the yeah, sun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What the? F- <laughs> I can't even process that. I don't even know what that means. Like my God, <laughs> right? But the, I mean, the the other cool thing about it is that the article you sent me. Mm-hmm. One of the coolest parts about it that I was reading was what's his name? The guy that shot it. Oh, Zemecki. Like he was the editor. Kemeki. Kemeki. Uh, he was the editor. Yeah. And the guy who was originally slated to produce it. He was too busy. So he like, <laughs> he like gave it to Kemeki to, to do. And so I guess he came at it with an editor's point of view. That's so cool. Telling the other, some of the camera cameras to film the people during the launch. Like how brilliant. And I remember watching it thinking, thinking that exact thing. Like these camera guys are not seeing this. The, or they're not seeing the launch. They're watching these people and it's, and I I felt bad for them, but I was so happy that they didn't because I got to actually witness the people's reaction to it. It is amazing. It's a different point of view coming from the vantage of an editor. And that's one of those little happy accidents that happened. Now, maybe if the director had stayed on, they would have, you know, created something even better. I don't know. You can't know, I guess. Yeah, sure. But An editor is so used to saying, oh, I wish I had this because reaction shots sometimes speak more volumes than the actual action. And this film is a story of editors, really, because, you know, the director didn't have anything to go on. He didn't create anything other than maybe some animations. And I doubt vaguely. Like, vaguely <laughs> small animations and what's so cool just to touch on those is, be- because yeah. those animations were absolutely perfect yes because they reflected the simplicity of the times and the technology that they had at the time yeah if you had created these yeah. outlandish amazing incredible 3d architectures of what they were doing back then it would have been beautiful but it would have betrayed what they were actually working with at the time right because back then right they they didn't have the power of our cell phones yeah. and to power their spaceships. It really puts it. Yeah. It really puts in perspective, uh, because I've heard that, you know, what is it? Voyager two, they, they said Voyager two, there is more technology or processing power in your car fob <laughs> than is in Voyager two, which is still <laughs> flying outside of the solar system now, uh, for like 50 years or something yeah. since the seventies. But a point being is that like, you know, you can think that and you can think, wow, that's crazy. I can't even imagine what it's like, but then you actually are seeing that you're seeing, you know, the racks and racks of computers, which probably like would have been like two mainframes, you know, like (laughs) today, um, and all the hundreds of people it took. And they're all looking at these like real analog, everything is analog. There's switches and buttons and stuff. And it's just so you could actually witness that. And, and, and then you're starting to, and then you're thinking, wow, they're sending people to the moon with this technology. It really sucks you in. And so, yeah, that I think I loved the animation because of that. It was really smart. And so, yeah, you have a film that was created by ultimately an editor who said, what's the best way to tell the story of, you know, landing on the moon. Then you also have the idea that 
these shots were instructed by an editor. Like, and so it's kind of two editors talking across, you know, whatever, 50 years. Yeah. That's so magical to me. And that's one of the many powers of art and I don't know, humanity, I guess. Yeah. And, and it just, it seemed like, because they could have screwed it up. Right. You know, if they, uh, if they decided, oh, we're going to edit this into like a aggressive drama, you know, because it's a drama, mm-hmm. definitely, but it's not like aggressive. It's like very, you, it lets you, it's, it lets it breathe, right? Yeah, it lets so you take patient. it in. It's really patient. And, and the editing is very, very patient. And, and I think they were trying to do justice to those, the way that that was shot. I think they noticed it. It took, takes a good editor to notice how is something shot especially when you don't have the person who shot it, you know, in front of you telling you, okay, now this is what we were thinking when we shot this, or we're hanging on this moment here because, or whatever, you just have to like be really good at trying to derive that yourself out of the footage. It's so hard because that's one of the hardest things about being an editor is knowing when to cut. And sometimes the absolute hardest decision is deciding not to cut. Because yeah. as people, we're, we're so active, we always want to do a thing. And we don't always understand the power of a moment because you might think, you know, the, the old adage is cut to the chase. And that's the idea of get away from the boring stuff. Let's get to the exciting stuff. Well, sometimes you have to understand that the exciting stuff isn't as exciting if there's no buildup, if there's no momentum going into it. Yeah. And so many times they just let a moment, like you said, play out. They'll, they'll hang on that moon landing for the full three, four minutes. And you just, for a while, you're like, okay, when are we going to, oh, no, we're staying here. Or the lem reconnecting. That too, yeah. Like, oh my, God. like a good three minutes. Oh, yeah. yeah. I'm like, oh, don't cut, don't cut, yeah, don't cut, I'm don't cut. begging you. Yes. <laughs> and it's just an incredible way to view film and to understand your role isn't to cheapen the effect of what you're trying to make people feel by inserting some of these false cuts and these false emotions. And instead of that, you know, you stay true to the moment and make people really understand and empathize with what's happening to these people in real life. You have two guys in space that are hurtling towards, you know, an object that no one's ever touched before. And it doesn't happen in an instant. And whenever you see those alarms come on, you don't understand what those alarms mean until you hear the uh, the commander. I don't know if it's Kranz or who else, but uh, comes on and says, oh, no, we're told it's fine if it doesn't come on again. And then 20 uh-huh. seconds later, it comes on again. You're yeah. like, OK, what does that mean? Now? Uh-huh. What are we doing? <laughs> and so it's such a patient thing to say, I'm not going to cheapen any of this by inserting music that doesn't need to be there or by inserting a cut of someone's worried face like those things are effective and they have their place, but to, to not do it and to trust yourself and more importantly, to trust the audience to yeah. stay there with you is such a powerful way to view uh, your, your medium. And my hat is really tipped to the gang at, uh, that worked on this, you know, Todd Douglas Miller and, and the team he pulled up because that's man. Thank you for yeah. trusting us. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So let's talk a little bit about Cinema Verite. Yeah, so that leads right into this, which is uh, Cinema Verite versus direct cinema is this kind of old idea of how much influence as a filmmaker do you want to have on the world that you're documenting? And so whenever you think about Cinema Verite, you're basically saying, I'm inserting my own will and influence over this project think of something like michael moore fahrenheit 9-11 bowling for columbine Mm. his opinion is heavily in there um and that's the extreme version of cinema verite i would say um well maybe not the most extreme but it's a very extreme version um where he's in the film literally and instead of just saying hey here's what happened here's what the way people responded He's literally in the middle of it saying, here's what I think of it. And I'm going to, yeah. and I'm in the interview with my subject. And instead of saying, oh, I'm just going to interview my subject and let them say what they want. Now you could still remove him out of the films and any documentary filmmaker and still say there's a level of inserting yourself just by nature of editing the interview. 
mm-hmm. right? Because through editing, we can make someone say something they didn't. Yeah, You could cut away and just suddenly mince their words up. And instead of saying, I know who killed them, you could say, I killed them. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, yeah. it's, it's very easy to do. Yeah. Um, and so that's the idea of cinema verite is you're inserting your opinion or you're influencing the uh, the views that are held in the film. You're you're modifying and you're injecting yourself some way. And the idea of direct cinema is trying to remove all the opinion and all the all the uh, the bias, and you're trying to remain as objective as humanly possible. So Fox News. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Fox News, MSNBC, right. all of it. CNN, yeah, it's just yeah. perfect. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so it really is a great commentary on news. <laughs> yeah, it really is. <laughs> but yeah, so direct cinema would be much more of this film, right? Apollo 11 is just, there's, there's no interviews at all. And so they're not trying to insert uh, a narrative. They're trying to let the movie tell you what it is through everything that happened on the ground. There's no hindsight injected into it. Um, There's no, yeah, there's, there's none of that. There's just, Hey, here's what they said. Here's what they did. Um, There's a, there's another filmmaker who's sometimes I guess kind of called the, the godfather of documentaries um, or the father of documentaries, something like that. But his name is Frederick Wiseman and he makes these kind of films explicitly like this is all he makes he made one on the the boxing gym i used to go to called and it's just called boxing gym (laughs) oh cool and it's just showing kind of the day in the life of richard lord the guy who owns the gym as he's going through his day and training athletes but there's no interviews there's no i'm going to sit him down and i'm going to uh hear what he has to say about what he's doing because even the 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 motion the action of sitting someone down to interview them well, what are they going to say? They're responding to your questions as a filmmaker. And in that way, you suddenly influence the outcome. But by being a fly on the wall and as little as possible influencing the environment, you can begin to give people an insight into the, the subject that you're trying to understand as a, as a person. Now, on some level, everything is cinema verite. On some level, I would say, just because... You have to cut something. Yeah. It has, every movie has a start and an end point. But I think, barring that kind of exaggerated idea, I really enjoy direct cinema. I mean, sometimes they can be very dry and hard to sit through. Not everything is Apollo 11. Right. <laughs> yeah. But I think it, it's a much more interesting approach. And it requires you know, a lot of patience. And you have to be an actual people watcher. There's a lot of people who call themselves people watchers uh, that aren't. Like, if you want to... If you're a people watcher, go watch Boxing Gym and say, oh, yeah, that was thrilling. Like, you just have to really enjoy the nuances of humanity and and to see people uh, in a very patient way. Um, but that really makes me appreciate Apollo 11 because you don't see these kind of documentaries come out yeah. almost at all. Yeah. And especially not with this level of, you know, magnitude. Yeah, I wasn't I, I wasn't aware that they weren't going to have any me interview. Yeah. And... At first, the first, I guess, 10, well, 15, 20 minutes, I was like, okay, still trying to figure out what this is, you know? Okay. And then they would kind of, I don't know, there were a couple moments where I was thinking, okay, now it's going to shift to an interview. And I was really expecting one. <laughs> and there was a, it was about 30 minutes in where I thought, okay, there's probably not going to be any interviews in this. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and, but you know what? I'm okay with that because yeah. I feel like it would ruin what I'm feeling right now, which was literally awe. Yeah. Uh, especially during the, the launch, I was just, I couldn't speak. I couldn't move. I was just watching and sucking it, it in. And, you know, uh, in, in so many launch scenes in, in films, you feel a little disconnected, yeah. you know, and you know, that's, it's totally normal. I think because you know, it's fake, Yeah, you know, it didn't <laughs> happen and you're watching CGI or something. Uh, usually I guess, but in this, like knowing this was real and by the way, the audio is on unbelievable. <laughs> uh, the way the dynamic range that they have in this is like incredible. So, you know, they'll, they'll have somebody talking and it sounds, you know, just fine volume. And then a fucking helicopter will come by and just rip your head off or the launch will just shake the entire room. And it's one of those movies where like, you can't watch it quietly at home. 
mm-hmm. with the kids sleeping because you're going to be turning it up, turning it down, turning it up, turning it down. But like in a theater, that's totally what you want. You know, because when those big moments happen, you are engulfed by the sound and, and the picture. And the shot, uh, the, the best shot in the entire film is when the, the, the rocket is taking off and the, the camera is literally right next to it. I don't know how this happened, but it's literally right next to the rocket and it's tilting up as it, as it, takes off and it, you know, starts curving with, I guess the turning of the earth or however they calculate that or whatever. Oh, right. And, and you're just following it and you're like, don't cut away. Don't cut away. Don't cut away. I felt myself saying that probably 40 times <laughs> yeah. in the movie. Don't cut away. Don't cut away. Uh, but that, yeah, it was just amazing. It really was. Uh, I mean, this was an experience probably unlike any other experience I've had in the movie theater. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because, I've been wowed and I've had probably four amazing experiences, I would say, in a movie theater. Jurassic Park they? as a kid. Okay. War of the Worlds um, mm. in the theater. Like, really one of the most tense experiences I've ever had in the, in the theater, if not the most. Avatar in IMAX 3D. Oh, wow. Was was incredible for me. It just maybe not as incredible, you know, story-wise, but <laughs> visually was just unparalleled and then interstellar um mm. in imax uh was was like very affecting for me and which were other worlds the original no the uh the 2005? spielberg yeah 2005 yeah. and this blew them all out of the water for me like i that's hard for me to say because uh, i don't take that kind of list building lightly but yeah especially when you talk about you know being 12 years old watching jurassic park like (laughs) (laughs) that was amazing um but this yeah as you know a 38 year old dude who's in love with space and always has been to feel so connected to something that has always honestly for me it's been a, a much more abstract idea i mean first man did a lot to help ground that for me but this I think pairs so perfectly with first man. Like mm. I, yeah, it's <laughs> yeah. just so affecting. It really, really does. They I take was, their, they're really patient with that movie too. And I, w- I would say I was on the verge of tears for probably the first 10 or 15 minutes. I was like, I can't believe I'm watching this. Such a cool, oh, yeah. such a cool experience. Yeah. One of my favorite little throwaway moments because there's lightly humor injected throughout very light. Yeah. Yes. Um, and, and it's hard to pick up because the audio, you know, is so degraded and old, even though they did an incredible job of restoring it. But the one that kind of took me by surprise that I laughed and then rolled my eyes was the joke of they're on their way back. And I think it's Collins. He's like, Oh yeah. No right. matter where you've been, it's always good to come home. Oh, I was like, <laughs> you, you would crack a dad joke in the middle yeah. of space. <laughs> it's so good. But there's such truth in that. Yeah. We can go out and find, you know, other galaxies and other, you know, worlds and everything, but there is nothing like where we are, where you are. Yeah. You know, wherever that is, you know, there might be something, even, you know, a better home for you in the future, but like where you are right now is your home. And so like, there's a, there's a reason why people say I need a vacation for my vacation. Cause you want to come home and take a bath and put on your jammies and sleep in your own bed. Like that's important, you know? Yeah. And, and most people have that feeling, not everybody, but most, but I feel like in general, just like the earth and specifically, this is our that's home. Such a good point and great observation. And it makes me think of my favorite part of this entire film was how much I got the feeling and I I really got the emotional impact that these guys were there on behalf of humanity. Yeah, good. Yeah, right. Right on. Peace of mankind was just reinforced time and time again. And the idea of America was it felt like a bit of an afterthought. It's like and, you know, it's great to do this for the states and for our, our guys back home. But man. We're we're here for the peace of mankind is yeah. kind of the impression I got. And I thought it was really cool. They put the flag up. They saluted it. You know, at the end of the day, it was America that put them there. But it was also, you know, I would say just as much Russia put us there. Yeah. You know, if, oh, it, yeah. if we weren't in competition, man. There wasn't a space race. Yeah. That would not have happened, definitely. And there's been so many amazing things come out of that technology-wise, which I wouldn't even know how to list or begin. Um, mm-hmm. Way out of my depth on that. But. Right. It, it's been just a, a world changing event for sure. Yeah. And I would say we have as much to thank Russia and probably China, um, as much as, you know, the, the men and women 
here at home who really, you know, showed him who's boss. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. A little bit of USA. Yeah. Uh, so let's speak to that real, just really quick and then we can move on to uh, another thing you want to talk about. So Armstrong, Aldrin and Collins, their attitudes throughout this whole thing, it, it they all, they all felt like everything's cool. Right. They, uh, there wasn't a moment. Okay. There are so many movies where there's like a lot of drama. There was no drama. Like it felt like everything was so smooth. Everything worked. Even, even when right before launch, there was a leak, like a hydrogen leak or something like that they had to fix. But you know, that wasn't really, you couldn't see the, the guys because they were already in the rocket, uh, or heading to the rocket, but they were in that car so you couldn't really see them, but in space, there were no real hiccups besides that one alarm when they were landing on the moon. <laughs> right. But, and even their heart rates, like they mentioned their heart rates and you're sitting there like, like what his heart rate was 88. <laughs> yeah. My God, is he dead? You're sitting on an explosion. <laughs> yes. Like, what are you talking about? Um, I mean, there was one moment, like, I guess it was in the landing where they, t- after the, after they landed, where they talked about their heart rates and they mm-hmm. were kind of high in the one fifties or whatever. But Buzz was just, on. they were all so cool. And yeah. even when they were, when they were interviewed, they weren't, there was zero sense of selfishness. Yeah. It was never about them. Like, and it, it was a, so honest that it wasn't, it, you know, cause a lot of times people will say, Oh, I'm doing this for so-and-so or, or this isn't about me. This is about whatever, but it really is yeah. about you. Let's be honest. And I'm, I'm lumping myself in. Sure. The, like you there. do the, the, not, I don't want to say like the bare minimum to give everyone their due, but yeah. at the same time, like you, you understand that you sit on the shoulders of those around you to some extent, but at the end of the day, you put in a lot of damn work. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. I'm the one sitting on a million gallons right. of fuel right That's now. Right. Uh, but there was zero of that. Yeah. And I, I think there was something I feel like, and I did not live in that era, so I cannot speak to it, but I feel like it was partially about just the era. That era was, was, I mean, not the greatest era in, in a lot of ways, you know, dealing with a ton of stuff. Like they're in stuff. the middle of, not just, you know, president being killed, JFK. Civil uh, Rights. Civil Rights Act was just passed, you know, four years earlier. Yep. And Nixon's in the White House. So yep. there's Vietnam, Vietnam going on. Vietnam going on. There's a lot of shit, yeah. right? But there was this, there was always like, it seemed like there was this air of, it's not just me. It's all about us, yeah. right? It was, it was much more of an outward kind of like facing era for lack of a better term, right? There's good and there's bad, I guess, about that. But point being is that I felt like they were a mirror of that era in in that way. Yeah. And, or it could just be that they were just really good dudes that were completely selfless. Their interviews were always just... They never talked about themselves, really. I mean, and they didn't really weren't really interviewed a whole lot. You didn't really hear them speak a lot. But there were at least a couple of times where they were either speaking to the camera or they were saying lines or, or, you know, phrases to people or whatever. And they were always really short and very matter of fact. And just, I guess when, when Houston would congratulate them, they would say, thank you yeah, or something. They yeah. would not have like talk like me where yeah. I'm just like on, going on and on about things that I don't really know what I'm talking about. They, they would just say, thank you. Or it, it was just, yeah, it was so wonderful to see that they were wonderful. Yeah. You know, humility and just gracious and, you know, God knows what's going on inside their heads, but at oh, a minimum, they were probably freaking out at some yeah, point. Yeah. But to keep composed and always, I mean, obviously that's a good chunk of probably why they got the job in the first place is, yeah. you know, cool under pressure. And I can't imagine, you know, spending the last eight years watching half your friends die and explosions and fires. And, oh, geez. Yeah. Um, that's got to harden you. And I'm sure they made their due before they ever stepped in that thing. But at the end of the day, the, the heart rate doesn't lie. You know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's how you feel. Man. And, and the, the countdown of fuel and, and oh, God. feet to land on the moon. 
he what he had 16 seconds yeah oh my very little god how amazing <laughs> so good you can't write that stuff well i guess you can write that right. stuff but this wasn't written it just happened uh anyway i digress no that's awesome like uh yeah, I have no idea. Yeah, but it was just touching on what, uh, Nixon again. It was kind of crazy seeing him on screen and like Johnny Carson. Um, yeah, and the only part I would say if I didn't like something, the only part I didn't like was okay, Nixon, you can shut up now. <laughs> like I'm, oh yeah, I'm ready to like. <laughs> yeah, when he's talking to yeah. him from the moon. Yeah, well, yeah, whenever he gives his, you know, I don't know, acceptance speech for I guess being in the White House at the time. Yeah. <laughs> Like, I'm like, all right. I'm in the oval room. Yeah. Thanks, bro. Like, yeah. You can pass the mic back. Yeah. Um, so I guess lastly, the one of the last things I want to touch on was uh, celluloid versus digital. Yeah. This is one of the magical things that uh, I don't think we're going to get out of digital. I think you leave your SD card next to the oven for too long and you're going to lose everything that's on there. Um, whereas these guys were able to archive film even the worst, most degraded film can still give you an image back. Like properly stored film can last for centuries, you know, God knows how long. And this, they had, they shot this in 69, like you said, and they were still had to invent new technology today to capture all the resolution that was on there. That's crazy. Wrap your head around that bastards. That's crazy. Like, yeah. That's amazing. An 18 K scanner to get everything they could off of that. Yeah. We're in a, we, we still don't have digital that can replicate that. And it's, you know, objectively to me is more beautiful. Like they yeah. shot something in 69 that I think looks better than anything uh, shot today. A hundred percent. Right. <laughs> it's the, it's, it's the most amazing thing I've, I've seen on a screen. It's incredible. I, I haven't seen anything that rivals it. That's insanity. Yeah. And so just in pure terms of archival, uh, capability, I, we, maybe we'll get there a digital. Don't get me wrong. Maybe there's something coming that allows us to safely feel like, Everything we've made is properly stored and archived and we'll have access to it, you know, a thousand years from now. We don't have it right now. Like there's things probably that we shot in, you know, the early 2000s that we may not be able to get access to because of either file corruption or just file incompatibility. Like mm. just formats are changing digitally over time. Think of it this way. A friend asked me this question. How long do you think it would take? for you to build your own iPhone that worked with the current iPhone. So like you could plug in a USB cord into your iPhone and connect it to your computer and everything works exactly the same way as your current iPhone does. Like you just couldn't do that. You never, that's the, that's the proper answer. Yeah, never. I could never develop software on Apart from that, I don't think humanity could uh, develop software apart from that and redo what we've done, is my point. And so catastrophe happens, I don't know, a Carrington event you know, pops off and there's a big solar flare that uh, destroys all of our electronics or whatever. It would be a really hard you know, mission to kind of be able to recapture something like this. Uh, the digital archives of humanity. Yeah. Um, whereas we could still go grab those, those prints right now, hold it up to the light, to a light bulb and see what's on there and, you know, build a ground glass camera obscura to kind of project it for everyone to enjoy. Like there's an analog effect that you can't replicate with digital. And I get that maybe I sound like a 75 year old fogey. That's like, Oh, you kids get off my lawn. But no, I, I would argue that most, uh, like most filmmakers probably feel the same way. Yeah. There's something to that. Yeah. Um, and that, and that's good. I mean, I still shoot on digital. I, I have an iPhone. I shoot on that sometimes and, uh, I use my C 100, like, nope, like it's the only camera ever invented. Like, yeah. you know, and I, and I love it. I also shoot on film when I can, which is not super often, hopefully more this year as projects get underway, but I just have a, a really big love of it. And they were able to do something even in this film that, you can do certainly in digital and, but I don't think if they were, if you, for instance, took the, the video that they shot, not the cell celluloid stuff, not the film stock, but they had video footage that, you know, they projected back home. That's what we were watching on. You know, the, the first step is a video uh, image and 
they were able to do like that shot outside looking at earth whenever they're on their way home and the earth is getting bigger. And at a certain point, as they're getting close to the landing procedures, they start, they start pushing in. We, we have this very slow, long zoom. They, I'm sorry, but Neil Armstrong wasn't in there like pushing the cameras. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> this was a yeah. post-production effect. I use it all the time where I'll just do a very, very, very subtle zoom over the course of, you know, 20 seconds. And it just adds a, uh, an, a creeping sensation of impending excitement of some yeah. kind. Yeah. Um, and they were, you don't see, I feel like I don't see a lot of filmmakers use this technique because usually they want to maintain the integrity of the resolution of whatever they shot in. And so the more you start zooming in on an image, the quicker it breaks down doubly. So for digital and doubly, so maybe triply. So for old film stock, like if you were to do that on old 35 millimeter film, that vision one right now we shoot on vision three film stock from Kodak. And back then it was vision one. And so not super high quality and certainly not 70 millimeter, but you couldn't do that on 35 without it. Like, getting really grainy and the degradation of the image showing through. But here they do this digitally, of course, um, using the celluloid and it just, everything holds up. You keep pushing in and then, and then, and we're sitting front row in a movie theater projected on this crazy big screen and everything still looks absolutely pristine. Um, and that's certainly thanks to, you know, 70 millimeter film. Yeah. Very cool. I like it. I mean, it's, it's, that's great to know that it, that, that has that much resolution. I think people, I don't think that people really know that that film has that much, uh, resolution and, and good film like 70 millimeter is, has that much like color depth. I mean like the colors in this film, I, I don't know how much posts they did coloring. I'm sure, I'm sure they did something, but like, it looks like Un, unlike anything I've ever seen. I, I don't even know. I don't know how to explain it because I'm not a colorist, but I would really love to to have a colorist explain to me what I'm looking at. Yeah. Like, why is why is this so pleasing to me? Uh, I mean, is it because I know it's real and the, the air shot in, it was shot in, and so they're kind of matching that kind of color scheme? You know, it's... A lot of soft, you know, a lot of muted like blues. Yeah, muted colors, but still contrasty. Yeah, because those set because at the in the late sixties we were getting into this era of highly saturated colors. Yeah. Like yeah, the seventies were just sixties were winding it up, and the seventies really start to like blow your eyes out with the hot pinks and yeah. uh, they have especially when they cut away from that contrast between the mission control versus people hanging out mm-hmm. is stark. Yeah. Like yeah. suddenly everyone's in their, you know, bikinis and uh, they're laying out in their hot blue cars or whatever. Yeah. Like that contrast just suddenly like envelops your eyes. Yeah. Uh, and for me, those were the, those are my favorite shots, you know, yeah. certainly the panning shots like in front of the JC Penny. Um, so awesome. And the, uh, the shots of the crowd sitting at Cape Canaveral, but then also seeing, God, man, sorry, I'm going off topic here. Uh, but the shots inside of uh, the the pre-launch sequence of yeah. them getting dressed, the, seeing stuff like that, I was in the movie theater trying to stay focused or afterwards I was on the drive home and I had the radio off. I was like, I can't listen to anything right now. I just need to sit and stew on this for, you know, the next 20 minutes. And I, my mind went into how can anyone think the earth is flat? <laughs> that the moon is flat. Oh my God. And I know people that believe these things. And this was the first time that I was like, you got to be a little stupid <laughs> because you're looking the at the first time. you saying that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because I try to believe the best about people. I really do. But thinking like you can believe the best about a stupid person. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's, yeah. <laughs> But I'm like this. We're seeing Neil Armstrong in a way we've never seen him before, and you're saying that what they suddenly just went and recreated these images of the moon and uh, of Neil Armstrong fifty years younger than the last time we saw him or whatever. Yeah. Like that's insanity. I, I 
just to touch on that for just <laughs> yeah, a second. Maybe that was a bad non sequitur. No, but. it was a good one because <laughs> it's a good one. Because this is supposed to be something that disproves that, right? Mm. For however long, how many hundreds of years we've said the earth is round, right? We've had people go, what? Aristotle, by the way, this is one of my favorite fun facts about the idea of flat earth versus round. I want to say it was Aristotle. It was one of those ancient Greeks um, that figured out the earth was round in like 300 BC <laughs> based on the the shadow of the earth on the moon. I forget his exact reasoning, but he was able okay. to reason out yeah. that based on the convex of the shadow of the moon, uh, of the earth on the moon in 300 BC, like 1500 years before the rest of us kind of caught up. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's like the dude, there's experiments you can do in your backyard, yeah. like put a stake in the ground. Where's the sh- How's the shadow cast go five miles away. Like look at the angle of that shadow. Like there's, there's a hundred things yep. you can do. Point being, the point I'm trying to make is yeah. that for hundreds of years, we've said the earth is round, right? Mm-hmm. Scientists, uh, every scientist says it. We've had astronauts go up into space that say it. Astronauts go to moon, obviously that say it. And yet now you have people that say it's flat and that we're supposed to prove to you that it's round. Fuck you. <laughs> you are supposed to prove to us that it's flat. You go to the fucking ice wall and take a picture and send it to me. That's what I want to see. I want to see the, I want to see your pictures of this fucking ice wall and you prove to me that the earth is flat because everybody says it's fucking round. So that, no, I'm not going to fucking do anything else to prove to anybody that the earth is round. It's a stupid, stupid uh, argument if you have something to say, if you think, oh, no, I can prove it to you or whatever, then fucking prove it to me because there has been no one out there that I've seen. And I have gone and dug deep to find out what is behind this craziness. And all of it is insanity. All of it is people that just want to have attention. And so they say, I believe this now. And then they get this attention because it's so radical and different. Sorry. Okay. I'm done. No, I think that's great. <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to edit a single word of that. I mean, I might good. add a little fun bleep. Uh, oh, good. For the, for the <laughs> or episodes. 12. Yeah. Or 12. But no, I think that's, that's, that's a really good point. Um, if you've seen the documentary behind the curve on Netflix, like mm-hmm. that is such an excellent kind of, Break down and look at it. Is a little bit of people. cinema verite, yeah, absolutely. A little, a little bit, but it, it's such a rewarding way, yeah, it is, and it's got a great punch to it. And yeah, you know, what? it is on, on you to say that everything that everyone else is experiencing is a lie. That's that's a pretty bold claim, and bold claims deserve bold evidence, exactly. I mean, I can't just say if I'm a scientist yeah. or just a human, yeah. I can't just say something is this like i have there has to be some kind of foundation as as to why that's that and it has to be explained scientifically it has to be reasoned out it has to be uh there has to be experiments to try to disprove it and after ex- experimenting several times finally coming to a conclusion that no that is the case that that yeah. we were not able to disprove that that is the case i mean that is it on the flat earther people to prove their stance, not the other way around. Yeah. If it's, it's so easy right now to just go on Google maps and get the earth satellite view and look around the entire world. And I'm not going to sit here and try to debunk all the, all the things that they say, Oh, this is why it's fake or this is why it's fake or see that or I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, people are, defending a view instead of being objective and saying, Oh, well, here's what I need to change my opinion. If you don't have any criteria for being willing to change your opinion, then fine. Just admit that and say, I'm going to believe what I want and to hell with everybody else. And at least then you'll be intellectually honest. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. So that was fun. That That was, was, that was, that (laughs) was my favorite part of this episode right there. (laughs) It really was. That is awesome. Final thoughts. Uh, what do you want to tell the story at the end of that Vanity Fair article that we're going to link? That is, uh, they take questions at the end. So at the no end, so the 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 filmmaker Todd L- Douglas Miller screened like the first half hour of this film to a to a small audience. Oh yeah, that that story. Okay, yeah. go ahead, go ahead. And so 
at the end, he, you know, he's taking questions as, and this older guy stands up and he's like, yeah, I used to work for the space program back in the day. And I thought you got, this was magnificent. I think one detail you got wrong <laughs> was that inside the, the cockpit of the shuttle was more like, you know, trying to drive a, a giant mile wide car down a narrow driveway. Um, and, and the article writer was like, and I turn around and I look at this guy. I'm like, you know, yeah, sure, buddy. How would you know? And then the guy announces uh, that he's Michael Collins, the guy that yeah. was in the cockpit yeah. <laughs> at the time. Yeah. That's such a great like right hook. I was like, yeah. whoa, I didn't see that coming. Yeah. Did he? Did he actually change the film at all after hearing that? I don't think so. It didn't. I mean, the, the I didn't get the impression that he did mention anything um, like that. But yeah, I think I mean this whole film. So, what would you give it? <laughs> Ten. Ooh, really? <laughs> Zero surprise. Uh, I mean, there were so many like little other stories too. The yeah. the the woman, uh, the sing, the only oh, woman. Man. So, in if you've seen the trailer for this film, you've seen there is a shot of a of a woman uh, in the control room. She's literally the only woman in a control room of like three hundred people of men, and she was the only woman allowed in there. Uh, she had just gotten a promotion or something. So this was her first, her first thing. And she got a little bit of pushback for, for the most part, everybody's pretty cool with, with that. And I, I thought that was a such, I mean, one, it was a, it's just a beautiful shot. It's like seeing a, a, you know, a splotch of yellow in a sea of blue, you know, it's just like, Oh, now the yellow and the blue are more beautiful than if there was just blue. Yeah. Uh, so the shot itself is, is awesome, but there's a story there, you know? Yeah. And in this article that we read, it actually mentions that, that like that could have been the documentary itself. It's just like, who is this woman and, and what's her story? So yeah, it was, it was there were, it was full of stories like that. So I totally give it a 10. That's so Definitely. cool. Yeah. yeah. Same easy for me. And even on that same note, like, that's one of the conflicting things about watching something like this is throughout the film, you can't help but notice how there's such a lack of diversity in that room. You know, there's no black people. Um, there's one woman and it's, it's painful. And then, you know, towards the end, uh, once you get outside of the control room, uh, mission control, like you see maybe two, maybe three like people of color. Yeah. Um, and it's like, damn, like, we missed out on a lot of brilliance uh, because of the times. Yep. Um, and it's one of those things that I think with the right lens on can add more appreciation on how far we've come. Like that was a monumental moment and there's still so much to do. And there's still yeah. so many places that uh, we're going now that looking at modern day documentaries about what NASA is doing so much cooler because of, how many more ideas and uh, people there are involved. And what's funny is that this movie shows that. Yeah. Like that is an aspect of this movie, even though it's not at all what it's about. Right. And you could go and watch this movie and not think anything about race at all. Not think anything about war, not think anything about sexism or any of that stuff. You wouldn't think about any of it, but it touches just ever so slightly on all of it. Yeah. It's, it's, I can't even, I can't even like, like, I mean, uh, there are parts where I was like, where I did want it to cut. Yeah. There were parts where I was like, okay, come on, get to the next thing. And, but it just held there. And, and after soaking it in, I, it's, I realized those are perfect moments too. Just like the moments where it doesn't cut and I want it to hold when it doesn't cut. And I do want it to cut are vastly uh, different feelings, but the same importance. Absolutely. I think that's the brilliance also of the opening shots yeah. is the, they're setting the pace by literally showing us how slow this process is. Yeah. You know, you're watching the, the, the rocket being loaded up and it's inching along inch by inch. Yeah. And by doing that, they're familiarizing us with the, the visual language that we're going to be experiencing for the next, you know, 90 minutes. Yeah. And so that's such a brilliant entrance and way to set our expectations and to uh, get us in rhythm with the film. Cause yeah. as, as an audience, right, we're used to bang flash explosions, loud noises and applause. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I'm, I'm really glad that you link this to first man because, uh, there's an aspect about, 
this that we don't really ca- we can't really grasp. So they they get into the rocket hours before it takes off. Yeah. And there is no room in that thing. And you don't really like first man and I don't want to I don't want to give anything away, but there is some stuff in that that really captures what they're going through by waiting. Yeah. You know, and uh, we're not able, you know, there's no camera in the cockpit. We're not able to see them and, and, you know, while they're waiting for takeoff, but just keep in mind, uh, imagine being in a closet with three, with two other people, like a very small closet with two other people and you can't scratch your nose if you've got an itch because you've got a helmet on. Right. Ooh. And, uh, and you're sweating cause it's hot and you're sitting on 8 million pounds of, of fuel and you're about to go and <laughs> like go to outer space like that. And you're sitting there for hours, like two, maybe three hours. Cause they, they, when it was three hours, three and a half hours before launch, this, that's when they headed to the, to the rocket. Took them 15 minutes, 20 minutes. They got there, went up, went into the rocket. And I want to say it was like two hours before launch when they closed the hatch. So they're sitting there for two hours in this like tiny little closet thing and sitting like facing up. Oh, right. Yeah. So they're not sitting straight up like you and I are right now. They were like laying on their backs, facing up for that long. Like, oh man, strapped in, like really strapped in you know, really tight, not a space you want to move around. in. No, you can, you can't move around, you know, and there's no going back. You just got to sit there and you got to <laughs> deal with uh, that. That's man. amazing. Yeah. Nice. So recommendation for the week. Yeah. Okay. I am going to rec. I mean, it, it kind of got to recommend this just because it goes with it. And it's such a good film. And I think I might actually, I don't know. I might actually watch it tonight. Just <laughs> all this talk, but I'm going to recommend Apollo 13. Uh, just kind of got to go there. Nice. You know, good old Tom Hanks film, but there's, you know, that that's another, it's another moon movie that is about more than just the, just the actual mission, yeah. you know, and it's, there's a lot deeper aspects to it. And it took just like Apollo 11 took thousands of people doing the right thing and thousands of smart people doing the right thing to make it happen, bringing these people home on Apollo 13 took just as many people, maybe even smarter people making harder, smarter decisions just to get them home. Yeah. Room for errors. Yes. No. Yes. That's cool. I'm going to recommend a show on Netflix called seven days out. They do a series of, you know, uh, what it's like building up to some big event. And I specifically want to point out episode three called titled NASA's Cassini mission. And so I'll just read the, uh, the, the synopsis from Netflix emotions run high as a NASA team prepares to crash the Cassini probe into Saturn after a 20 year mission gathering precious data until the end. Like it's such a really cool dive into and if you liked Apollo 11, then you will absolutely love that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I saw it. It's good. Dude, it's really so good. cool. Um, nice. Well, stay tuned next week as we dive into 2004's Man on Fire with Denzel Washington. I'm pretty excited about that. Um, don't forget to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Uh, if there's something you want us to talk about or uh, if you just want to comment on this episode and say, yo, this was my favorite spot. I loved hearing how the... They laid out the the blood pressure or heart rates of everyone. And it was yeah. like 110, 97, 88. Yeah. <laughs> like, holy yeah. crap. Yeah. Buzz, Buzz. You killer. Man, you are a fit dude. <laughs> if you want to comment on this episode, you can do that at the pestlepodcast.com slash Apollo 11. And we're going to leave you with a clip of the day. Yeah. Yeah. We set sail on this new sea because there is new knowledge to be gained and new rights to be won, and they must be won and used for the progress of all people. For space science, like nuclear science and all technology, has no conscience of its own. Whether it will become a force for good or ill depends on man, and only if the United States 
occupies a position of preeminence. Can we help decide whether this new ocean will be a sea of peace or a new terrifying theater of war? I do not say that we should or will go unprotected against the hostile misuse of space any more than we go unprotected against the hostile use of land or sea. But I do say that space can be explored and mastered without feeding the fires of war, without repeating the mistakes that man has made in extending his writ around this globe of ours. Wow. <laughs> That's a speech, man. Dude, he just... Like, we always hear the we choose to go to the moon part of the speech, but it was pretty full of, you know, intent, and uh, I don't know that I love all of it. Like, from the standpoint of there's there becomes this kind of, I don't know, egocentric or nation-centric idea of the United States having to occupy a position of preeminence uh, to help decide whether this, you know, will be a peaceful or new terrifying theater of war um just because especially at the time uh we we didn't have a good track record like post-world war ii and we're a little all over the place when we know with our choice of wars and uh ever since then i would say we've had a very awful track record of our ability to do that now i think the uh the intention is probably great like yeah we want to go there in peace and we want to do these things but um yeah, I, man. I mean, there's so much in there, but I loved his attitude was, we're not going there for the sake of war. We want to go there to fuel science and technology and uh, to do good with these things. Mm-hmm. And I think ultimately, to me, when I think about NASA, that's what it stands for. Yeah. I mean, I, I miss the days of, of speeches like that, that were inspiring, whether you, you know, agreed with all of it or not. They yeah. were, they were, they came from a place of like, uh, we want to inspire the people. Like, what else does a politician speak for? You know, what's the purpose of a politician to speak if it's not to inspire the people that he's supposed to be representing? Like, that's the whole point. I mean, even the 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 uh, State of the Union address is supposed to be inspiring, and never is. It's always just yeah. like dribble garbage yeah. um, from both sides, Absolutely. and it's just it's. You know, I didn't really like in that. The, the wonderful thing was I didn't hear partisan stuff. You know, yeah. I didn't hear Republican, Democrat. Like, it didn't matter. It was about humanity, right? And yes, there was a, a, a nationalism aspect to it. But, I mean, that is a welcomed thing to yeah. what we're experiencing now. Because it, whenever I whenever I hear him say that, it feels like he... He feels, you know, the Kissingers of his world, you know, are going to call him weak. And so he almost has to include it like, look, we're we're playing the game still. Don't worry. You know, all you warmongers. Yeah. But our attitude isn't war. Our attitude is peace and uh, goodwill for all mankind and to master our existence and to conquer our future. Yeah. Yeah. God. Yeah. It was just a good one. Yeah. Jeez. (laughs) <laughs> that like, yeah. hurts my heart a little bit a little bit anyway uh thank you guys for joining us i had a great time Dude, this man. was amazing it was i i want to go back and watch it again same yeah <laughs> hopefully you guys have already seen it and you know like it as much as we did but uh like wes said please uh subscribe review us on itunes we need all of that tell your friends share it it really helps and if there's something that you want to see us uh cover let us know and maybe we'll cover it who knows but until next time i'm todd i'm wes go watch some movies